Well, hello and welcome to a uh, very special edition of our uh, Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint Live. Uh, we're not usually here on Mondays, uh, nor do I usually have a guest right here with me as soon as we start. Uh, but we've got a lot to talk about. And I'm really excited about today. Uh, I do want to say that I am here in Maryland with rain coming down and thunder uh, booming. <laughs> and, and Cheryl, I know you're uh, probably getting the same storm. So if we quickly vanish, it was nothing you said, hopefully nothing I said, and nothing anybody else said. So um, with that as uh, kind of an introduction, Cheryl, let me let me introduce you. I usually kind of go through the introduction separately, but uh, I figured we would just kind of dive in. But uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of introduction. I might go over everything. But of course, you're uh, the founder and owner of Advocating for Kids and a special education advocacy organization. Uh, you do a lot of information workshops for parents and professionals. Uh, addressing the needs of black and brown children and those from lower socioeconomic status. Uh, you've got a uh, master's of arts in urban education and, and uh, counseling, uh, and you completed uh, postgrad credits in psychology as well. Uh, and probably the information I have here is probably not even fully up to date. Uh, I know you've done the uh, COPA training in terms of advocacy training. Uh, mm -hmm. You have, uh, oh gosh, uh, I've got a, a lot here for you. Um, uh, of course, um, uh, NAPSI, NAPSI, eh, NAPSI as well, um, and uh, just really have done a tremendous amount of advocating, uh, not only in Virginia, but really kind of across the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I think the uh, the most important title that I have for you today uh, is my friend. Uh, mm -hmm. It's always great to see you. Uh, <laughs> you. You called me earlier this week and, you know, we were having a great conversation, which is kind of what led to us deciding, hey, let's do a live event. Right. Uh, because we were just having a conversation about it. <laughs> so let me start, Cheryl, by just saying welcome and, and thanks as always. Um, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, whether uh, I'm joining you or you're joining me. Um, it's it's great. Great to see you. Hi, Guy. Yes, I love it when we have our conversations. Whenever we do talk, though, I mean, we deep dive into stuff. So they're always fun, exciting and uh Good conversations that keep me on my toes. So I absolutely, uh, and, and you called um, because you wanted to talk about this new guidance uh, that we got yeah. from the Department of Education, and uh, you and I, of course, started having an, an interesting conversation about it. And and I, I remember because you you kind of uh, laughed at me a little when you said, "Well, you know, listen to you being uh, you know kind of you know because." While I'm glad to see the guidance is out, you know, I'm right. always wanting more and you kind of, uh, you know, uh, tease me a little bit about, you know, kind of that, oh, well, but but I got a lot of great things about this. <laughs> so yeah. that conversation we had was going so well that it seemed like it'd be a fun thing to do to kind of do it as a live event and uh, talk a little bit about what this guidance is that came out. I'm going to put my screen up for a second uh, okay. and just share a few things. And, um, you know, of course, the Department of Education on the 19th. Um, put out a release. Uh, there was a statement from uh, Secretary Cardona as well. Uh, and in that, they included a number of resources. Uh, so they have a resource called Supporting Students with Disabilities and Advocate, uh, Avoiding Discrimination, uh, the Use of Student Discipline under Section 504. Uh, there's a question and answer addressing the needs of children with disabilities and IDEA uh, that came out from um, uh, OSEP. Uh, and also something about positive, proactive approaches to supporting uh, the needs of children. So there was a lot of guidance that came out uh, just last week. And of course, uh, all of these documents are now um, available 
on the Department of Education website, and we'll try to pro provide some links to those. Of course, I was midway down in the document there, uh, but we've got all of these uh, available, and there's some some really good information in these. Um, so, you know, I think based on our conversation, we thought, well, gee, wouldn't it be fun to kind of talk through these a bit and talk through uh, some of the things that, you know, in, in your uh, role and experience, of course, you're you're always thinking about it from kind of the advocacy direction, you know, always. how is this information, I mean, honestly, useful to me as I'm advocating for children that uh, you're, you're helping or working with families. So I know that you had kind of put together some notes uh, and, uh, oops, let me get my mouse back here. I'm going to unshare my screen. I'm actually going to pull your screen up for a second. And okay. I thought it might be fun to uh, kind of go through some of the notes that you had given uh, and talk through these different documents of what you think, um, you know, as an advocate, as a parent, as somebody that's really engaged in this work, what you think is really going to be helpful. So let me pull that up. All right. And as I'm doing that, I want to encourage people that are watching. Um, I see some friends already here uh, joining us. Um, see from a couple of people. Uh, but if you're on uh, watching us, uh, please feel free to tell us who you are and where you're from. And as we're talking about this, if you've heard about this new guidance and you have questions about it, feel free to ask those as we go along. And, and Cheryl, I know you'll, you'll be kind of talking through your notes initially. So I'll, I'll do the uh, work of keeping an eye on the chat. And if we get questions, I'll try to pop those up. But I know you're a pro at this too. So you might see the questions coming up uh, right. and we can take those as they come. So I'm going to let you kind of take it away and then we'll start kind of going back and forth and talking about it a little bit more. Okay. I want to thank everybody that's here joining us, Deb and Sandy and Maria Davis from Autism and Black and Lisa. Um, so please post your questions. We want to hear what you have to say and Teresa. So let's start off with, there were four, four separate documents that all kind of came out together. And one side was IDEA. The other side was looking at issues around Section 504. So the ones that I want to cover, which I think are most impactful, believe it or not, in the language, is from the Section 504 piece. Um, so first there was like a fact sheet. It's a four page document where they kind of pulled out information that they found as facts based on data that they've been collecting throughout the year. So I'm going to kind of start with with that piece, Guy. OK, OK. And the fact sheet is called Supporting Students with Disabilities and Avoiding the Discriminatory, <laughs> Discriminatory Use of Student Discipline under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And so I'll put I the links in the chat as as well. Say that again? I'll put the links in the chat as okay. you mentioned the different documents. Yes, yes, that's really helpful. Um, and um, I loved the definition of FAPE, right? Now, um, and, and it really, I don't remember this section two being in it, but I've always, I've always been a fan of the definition of FAPE under Section 504 because I feel like it's broader that it has more protections. And it's basically saying that, you know, a free and appropriate education provisions are required. Um, provisions require schools to provide students with disabilities regular or special education and related service um, I mean, special, I'm sorry, special education and related aids and services that are designed to meet the student's individual needs as adequately as a student who doesn't have disabilities are met. So that means that the child 
who may have ADHD and I'm using ADHD because I'm ADHD and I can give better examples and it's also easier. <laughs> so under that, this definition of faith, they are saying that that, that disability of ADHD, um, the school has a requirement to provide provisions for educational services, special education services, related aids and other services. This whole document provides a lot of strong evidence that I've not seen out before, Guy, that really kind of talks about what that looks like, especially when you say special ed, ed or related aids or services. And then it says that they're designed to meet the individual needs, the individual education needs as adequately as a student without a disability. So it's about equaling the playing field when we talk about Section 504, and that's why it falls under discriminatory, right? Mm -hmm. um, people with disabilities have different neuro needs as it relates to learning and instruction. And the Section 504 is to help level that playing field so that they too can grow and thrive as if a student without a disability. Um, there's also some other pieces here about the division of faith that I think are important that are often overlooked, at least in the cases that I've had this year around Section 504. And that is also the uh, satisfying the Section 504 requirements for evaluation and placement, educational setting, and procedural safeguards. Guy, when I read that, I was like, wow, <laughs> that's powerful because generally, um, at least in my region and where I do engage in Section 504, meetings and plans, school districts are very limited in their knowledge and they just want to focus on an accommodation. Mm -hmm. They very, very seldom will allow the conversation to even be about a placement, meaning a child with just a 504 right. going into right. like an inclusion class or a special education class. So I think it's really, really interesting that um, they talk about that and they use that language which for me is great. So, because if I'm in a 504 meeting, right. my right. kiddo needs to be in an inclusion class with a special education teacher. Now I can use this language and say, wait a minute, the new fact sheet says that this is a consideration. So that, that was one of the ones that I pulled out as significant and something that I can see myself using very much so um, in, in, in my practice or in information that I share. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah it, that kind of struck me as well. And, and, you know, um, you certainly have a tremendous wealth of experience as an advocate doing this work uh, and, and, you know, working with people, both with 504s and IEPs. Mm -hmm. uh, I have less familiarity with the, the 504 plans, but um, my, my impression was, uh, well, let me, let me put it this way. Reading this guidance made me feel there was much more strength or mm -hmm. potential strength to a 504 than my impression previously led exactly. me to believe. Uh, exactly. And that's a positive thing. And I think that's what you're saying is yes. it, it puts a little bit more behind that to say, mm -hmm. you know, th this isn't just about A, B and C, but mm -hmm. it's about anything that the child might need under that 504 plan, including things like placement that you don't normally maybe think about being part of that. Exactly. And then that's why, you know, when we first talked, I was like, I was really impressed with the 504 language because it really like gives people um, gives parents, gives advocates, gives attorney more to work with, um, and and things that you tr traditionally struck. I struggle with with seeing in the school. I have a, I had a couple cases in Maryland this year, mm -hmm. and one of them was around a five hundred four, and, and and it was very difficult in in getting them to finally agree 
just uh, providing additional aids and supports like behavioral intervention plans, which this document talks about a lot. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's powerful. Are yeah. you have questions? Okay. I, I just, th this is very, I think, kind of relevant even early in the conversation here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's around do children need to have an official diagnosis to be granted support? Um, yeah. So from I, the perspective of a uh, 504 or IP, do you want to? Yes. In fact, that's my next session, my next sec section on this. That's really great. And and my thing is, if you're yes, your child needs to have a diagnosis, because within the definition of, you know, within explaining what Section 504, it, it is for people that have they it, it uses it doesn't use disability as much. It uses impairment, physical, physical or mental impairment. So, yes, the child has to have some kind of uh, disabling condition that significantly impairs them to function in major life activities like reading, learning, concentrating, alertness. Um, the, the list is not exhaustive, which is what I like about Section 5042. It's, 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 it's a huge list of how, how um, the child's disability may impact them in school. I think it's, I think it's broader than it is under IDEA. And um, and I want to go over the evaluation piece. Now, there's some really, really strong language that I had to highlight and read it here. So I had four cases this year <laughs> where I had the, the, the issues that are um, outlined in here perfectly that, that this would have been great information to, 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 uh, to use. I mean, I was able to get through the processes, but uh, this guidance would have been wonderful to give to the staff. Um, so this is about evaluations. One of the, the, the I think, one of the uh, biggest myths or untrue information about Section 504 is that the parent somehow has the obligation of getting the child evaluated, then bringing a note to the school and saying, oh, look, my child has ADHD or threat system, uh, threat syndrome or autism or whatever the disability may be. And then the school saying, oh, we want to, you know, then now you're eligible. This, this document blows that out of the water. They, it, it says evaluation schools must not, not, not can or should, or it must, it means they have to do it. And that is in a timely matter in that um, evaluate a child at no cost to the student's parents or guardians when the school has a reason to believe a student needs special education or related services or related aids, sorry, and the student may have a disability. Um, so that's your child fine kind of clause under Section 504. I think that that gets lost a lot. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, like I said, I had three cases in uh, one school district where the kiddo uh, was having some behavioral issues. Parent had private diagnosis of ADHD. Um, parent asked the school for an evaluation, and they were like, "No, we're not going to do that. He doesn't. He's fine. He's 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 okay. He doesn't he doesn't need an evaluation. It's just behavioral. You know, it's just." It's just he's, he needs to learn to listen and not be impulsive or increases medication or changes medication. But the reality of it was that was a violation. They should have at that point immediately evaluated the child. And of course, I got that rolling. We did get the child evaluated. But I think in parents, please, please recognize that like IDEA, under Section 504, your child, the school must conduct an initial evaluation. It must be free to you. And um, they have this other section that I think is kind of interesting. 
um, no cost to the parent or guardian. And regardless of whether the parent or guardian has requested the, the evaluation, when the school has a reason to believe the student is in need of special education or related, related aids, including the student's behavior indicates that they may uh, have a student's placement, including um, a, a behavioral disability. So to me, that's huge. If you have a kid who is getting referrals, like uh, getting um, out of school suspensions, in school suspensions, um, having disciplinary kinds of things happen to them based on their behaviors, that if you as a parent know it is part of their disability and an evaluation should take place. Right. You know, it's not okay to let the kid struggle. And that's yeah. what I feel that they're saying here when they talk about regardless of whether a parent or guardian right. has requested the evaluation. Right. If they see this pattern of behavior where they're having these issues with the student, that they have an obligation to evaluate. Yeah, I, I love that word obligation because, you know, when I read this, um, you know, got the same impression, which is, you know, yes, a parent might, a parent might. Uh, bring up the need for evaluation. A parent might be the one that's saying, hey, we think there's a problem. But really what the guidance gets to is that it's the district's obligation. Yes. Not just that the district can do it, but they, they have an obligation. Yes. So, I mean, I, I think it's even beyond being proactive, which you would hope that a district would be proactive and say, hey, we're seeing these kinds of issues. We're seeing maybe certain behaviors that are that are leading them to believe that there could be uh, a disability that they have an obligation, uh, not just a, you know, well, they can, um, they can. right, right. right. It, it really does put ownership to the district of, of taking that very proactive stance. And, and I would take it even a step further that by the district, not evaluating a student right. that they are constantly suspending or restraining right. or secluding or calling to remove that they are violating and they are engaging in disability discrimination. I would Absolutely. And, and, and denial of a free and appropriate public education. Yep. 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 Because they make that language so strong in here right. for what they need right. to do. And they even say here, um, even if the student is doing well academically, the fact right. does not justify denying or delaying any evaluation when the school has a reason to believe the student has a disability. The school must respond to a parent's request for an evaluation. And a denial of a request can be challenged uh, through procedural safeguards. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, something that's absolutely important, too. If you go to your school and say your child, within the first nine weeks of school, your child has five behavioral referrals, your child has ADHD, school said no, your child's not eligible under IDEA for some crazy madness, I say then you go and then you request an evaluation under Section 504. If they say no, I think you have, a, I, I, recommend, I highly recommend that you follow a complaint with Office of Civil Rights for, disciplinary, for a disability, disability discrimination. Because I think this document is developed specifically for situations like that. And we need to have tools in our parents' hands and our advocates' hands so that we can protect our kids from being traumatized by the restraints, the seclusion, right. the right. being kicked out of the school, the prison, the school pipeline. That's the only way we're going to stop it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this one hits home with me a little bit because I can go back several years and remember uh, essentially being told that 
um, you know, that my son wasn't having academic issues. Uh, and, and in fact, was was kind of told, well, you know, that I had to manufacture some some issues here uh, mm -hmm. to to yeah. to get help for a child. Uh, there, there's so much, uh, I think, misunderstanding uh, out there. Uh, and unfortunately, that puts a lot of uh, kids and a lot of families uh, in a really tough place in terms of getting services. A lot yes. of false information that gets carried. But you're right. This is strong. And, you know, I think even even, you know, I mean, the guidance is only good if we hold them to it, mm -hmm. um, you know, that if we think that there's a denial of if we think there's discrimination, if we think there's a den denial of a free and appropriate public education, mm -hmm. uh, the guidance is not doing us any good if we're not filing a complaint. Right. Exactly. I mean, don't we need to take some action to really make the guidance useful? Work. Exactly. I, I participated in the uh, phone call that they had that day that they released this with the White House. You know, they like to be a little celebratory about what they did. <laughs> and I was able to get a question in one of my questions, because in Virginia, we don't have any state oversight at all when it comes to Section 504. Mm -hmm. And my question was that, you know, what about states? Because, because you know, they made it very clear during that call that this is for school districts and for states. You all need to be doing this. This is, this is something that we're getting feedback on that you're not doing. You need to do this. So my, my question was, what about when you don't have a state enforcement for Section 504? And their response was, we are investigating. We are taking complaints. I mean, they were very upfront about that. They were like, don't be scared to use this information to file a complaint if you see violations. Right. So right. You're, you're, you're absolutely right, which is why I think that this document's better than the one they did for IDEA. Mm -hmm. The one for IDEA I thought was weak. It didn't tell us anything new. In fact, mm -hmm. it was supposed to be uh, a redo of the 2006 colleague letter also. And it, it just doesn't have any meat in it. Um, mm -hmm. But this one has a lot of good stuff that you don't generally see in guidance department, in guidance um, documents about uh, the school's obligation. If you are doing this, if you are constantly kicking a kid out of school, you and your staff, you had the obligation of, right, to, right, to right. evaluate right. this child. And when you, right. and because you didn't, you denied faith and you discriminated. Um, yeah. So I want to move on to one other yeah, we'll, section of this. Let me just get one question here real quick, because, um, you know, I, we actually have a lot of chatter going on. Oh, wow. You can hit some of that in a few minutes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we sometimes hear and, and I've been there uh, when you hear, well, it's guidance. You know, we, we have lots of guidance out there. But but this guidance is a little different in, in terms of. There is guidance in here that says <laughs> the Office of Civil Rights would not find that a district was, you know, that the district was not following the law if they were doing X or Y. This guidance is really more than just, we think you should do these things. This guidance is really about if you're not doing these things, it's likely if you were to be investigated that right. these you things would be found so. against you. So Mandy asks, you know, I had a state board tell me that guidance is not a requirement. Well, and that may be true, but this kind of guidance, I mean, this is essentially the Office of Civil Rights telegraphing the districts. If you're doing this, I mean, I mean, there's and there's a number of the questions that are asked in this guidance that get to we would not find that to be reasonable or, or we would likely not find in favor of district doing these things. So right. while this may be guidance, it's guidance based on legality of enforcing Section 504. Right. I mean, so this is it's, a little stronger than just these are things you should do. So, Mandy, you you and I are on the same wavelength because 
um, my follow-up question guy, when I said that I participated in the White House discussion about this, was her exact comment. I was like, you know, the other issue is that, you know, this is guidance. I've had school boards attorney tell me that it's guidance, that they don't have to implement it. And they, they, were, they were like, you were right. Your school board attorney is right. It is guidance. But it's guidance on the obligation the school right. district has. So I, I love the way that she said that. It's like, this is guidance on what you're supposed to be doing. So you don't have to do exactly what the guidance is. But we are telling you, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what the law says. So if you're not doing this, then it's an issue. Right. So, um, so, so I just so thought it was amazing. She had the same question that I actually asked the White House staff about. Yeah, yeah. But but to me, that takes it to the next step which is if you're not following this guidance and <laughs> someone files a complaint yep. under these circumstances, we would probably uh, not yes. side with the district. So and it says no, that, yes. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it's very strong guidance. I mean, you know, if you're going to say yeah. that, but, but I, I know what you're saying. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we've kind of gone through that before we had sure. guidance go out in 2012 about restraint and seclusion, and we still have many States that have no laws around restraint. And seclusion. Exactly. But, I, but this is different because there is that legal enforcement piece here. Right? Exactly. And, he, and, he, and I was very disappointed because, you know, I, I, I still I do. I'm, my heart is invested in restraint and seclusion right. work, too. And, and um, you know, I was disappointed. I was a little disappointed that they weren't a little stronger on restraints in seclusions. But they did include it when they talked about patterns of behavior that if the school district is restraining a child or is secluding a child, over and over, then they need to be doing something else because that's not what they should be doing. Um, yeah. So I did like that language, but yeah, you you and I had a conversation about this, and yeah. and and I kind of was in that same position, and and I've gone back through it, and and part of what I thought here is that. Well, they do mention it. They do talk about it. They do talk about restraint seclusion. Now, why is that significant? Well, in the past, of course, you know what they've been. What's been said is, well, restraint seclusion aren't disciplined, so we don't include them when we're talking about discipline. But what you and I and so many of the people that are joining us right now know is that restraint seclusion are used for discipline. Yes, it is. Um, so th there was this kind of hard line that said, well, we don't talk about these things because they're not intended as discipline. But I think the fact that they're mentioning them here yes. in both the 504 and the IDEA guidance shows the recognition that these things are being used uh, as discipline and that they're being used in discriminatory ways. So no, maybe not exactly what I want to see, but it still, I think, is is putting some credibility behind it. It is. I mean, I mean think about it. Think about like your own personal experiences. I don't know what you mind sharing at all the times that your child, say, was restrained or secluded in any more, any time more than one or any after that first one, this document reads like they need to be evaluating and even right. reevaluating and, and right. doing more things for, for supports because it, it talks about that a lot. It talks about, and even if a child is receiving services, does have a bit, but they continue to engage in behaviors, you need to reevaluate again. So from that perspective, can you see the difference in it being helpful? Oh, absolutely. Look, I, mean, I forget. Know. I'm not interviewing you. You're interviewing me. So. Oh, no, no. We're having a discussion. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what it's all about is, <laughs> is talking about this. But, you know, I mean, I definitely I think that things are broadly moving in a better direction. But I mean, you know, where things will never be good enough to me is like, yeah. you know, it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this hard for parents. Um, you know, when we know, uh, and one of the things that's said in one of these reports, and I have to look at which one, but basically talks about data and says that, well, while data may inform uh, what we do, it doesn't necessarily, um, how did they put it? it? It was something like, um, 
Um, you know, it's, it may be evidence, but it's not kind of primary evidence. Um, you know, wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where, where we, we looked at schools that had these uh, trends and patterns and we were more proactive? Uh, you know, of course, I have a tremendous, um, you know, you know I, I think, and, and I think you feel the same. I mean, I think I feel uh, that there's a lot of people that are working in OCR, that are working in OSEP, that are really genuinely trying to make a positive difference. Um, but, you know, I don't think we have the resources we need. I mean, the amount of time it may take for a OCR complaint to move forward, um, you know, some of those things can really be disappointing for sure. But, you know, I think definitely this is moving in a, a better direction. I, I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I had I filed an OCR complaint and uh, I was surprised I got the letter acknowledging that they were going to open the complaint fairly quickly. It was like within that time, mm -hmm. 10 day timeline. But their investigations, I've heard people say that they've gone two or three years. Right. And, and that's a that's a really long time. Um, my belief, my position is, though, once the district is aware that the OCR has opened a complaint to investigate an allegation, there's some pressure put on them to try and do the right thing, to try and resolve it. Um, you know, if if it's a good district, if it's a bad district, they'll use it to retaliate. But, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, there are opportunities for it because there's some good districts out there and there's some horrible districts out there. So it could go either way. But I do want to go back to this one piece about evaluations here. And this is um, here. It says Section 504 does not limit the number of evaluations a student may reasonably request or receive. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was also interesting, you know, because it always feels like um, uh, school districts tell parents that they can only have, oops, sorry, evaluations every three years, right? That right, time right. instead of once a year, every time it comes up or, you know, under Section 504, that evaluation is already even required. This document literally says, no, you can do, you know, there's no limit on the kind of the number of evaluations. There's also no limit on the kinds of evaluations. So you can do behavioral assessment evaluations. You can do IQ evaluations, speech evaluations, OT, any evaluation that is going to give data, you know, on what the child needs based on their disability is an evaluation that can and should be done equally under Section 504 as it's done under IDEA. Mm -hmm. That was the big message I got out of all this evaluation piece. And like I said, to me, that's new. That's something very new. Um, usually people just look at the one pieces of like a psych and that's it. Um, a lot of times districts want parents to go get the evaluations and don't want to do it at all. And I've even um, <clears throat> have, have sat in meetings where the districts claim that the evaluation is just a record review where no data, no new data is collected. It's just uh, whatever they already have, teacher feedback, SOL, or whatever their high stakes testing may be in that particular state and determine whether or not the child is eligible under Section 504. And parents, I urge you to stay away from that. You really want to get some standardized information um, on how your child's disability, especially if it's a behaviorally based disability, because this guidance focus on, be, focuses on behaviorally based disabilities, right? Mm -hmm. so yeah, I, which, are, which are often, um, you know, those that are leading to uh, punitive discipline. Uh, and, and a lot of the punitive discipline is itself 
um, presenting new challenges for a child potentially. You know, one of the things that I, I like collectively about this guidance was that there was a real focus, in, in my opinion, uh, when you looked at it holistically, of, of saying something that I think you and I and others say a lot, which is mm -hmm. that, you know, if we're seeing behavior, it should be a signal to us that we're not appropriately meeting a child's needs. And I feel like I heard that throughout this guidance, but, but then it took it a step further and said, and if you're not meeting an appropriate, a child's needs appropriately, the next step of that is to do additional evaluation. So yes. that, that seemed to be very consistent in this uh, guidance was that, you know, um, discipline um, should, in fact, uh, be a, a reason to look at um, doing evaluation. Exactly. I mean, it, it says that regularly. And, and it's saying, again, it puts the obligation on the school districts. If you see that, that's your trigger to give some supports. And it also talks about even if your child has the 504 already in place and you're still seeing some behaviors, you need to reevaluate again, identify if additional testing is needed, identify if additional services are needed. They talk about providing social work services. I think I have that in here. Um, well, not, not on the fact sheet. So that was a majority of the information out of the fact sheet. Okay. I'm going to now move down to the actual guidance document. And that's what it was called. Um, supporting students with disabilities and avoiding discriminatory use of student discipline under section 504, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> U.S. Department of Education Civil Rights. I didn't mean that. Sorry. Again, they talk about, here was a, a a section where they talked a little bit about, you know, the restraints. Additionally, schools' inappropriate use of mechanical, physical, other restraints referred to collectively in this guidance as a restraint or the use of seclusion in response to a student's behavior could, did you see this, could deny faith mm -hmm. or constitute mm -hmm. disability discrimination as explained mm -hmm. in their prior uh, documents. And they came out early. That was like on page three. Right, <laughs> so, right. you know, they gave it flint attention, which was good. Because, again, that goes to the idea uh, of what we talked about. Restraint seclusion isn't for behaviors. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I mean, I was very pleased to see that. I mean, at yeah. the end of the day, um, it, it had, it, I mean, it ultimately said something very similar than what we saw in the 2016 Dear Colleague letter, which which said essentially that if you use restraint seclusion only once, that it could result mm -hmm. in new problems. It could result in a denial of free and public, public education. But I was pleased to see it, like you said, having that kind of priority. And, mm -hmm. and I'm also trying to recall here, I've, I've got my notes in front of me, but that doesn't mean I can find what I was looking for. But I have recollection that there was a previous uh, version of this document. And I went back and looked at the previous version, and I don't think that it mentioned mentioned uh, restraint in that previous version, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think it did either. Yeah, I, I yeah. really don't. Yeah, I, I went back and looked and I'm like, oh, well, no, it, it didn't. I, I was going back through all of them because I was comparing a couple of them to like, right? because you know, our other ones got archived under DeVos. Mm -hmm. So these are restating some of those ones that were archived and adding stronger language. So yeah, I was doing the same thing, going back and forth, trying to find that too. But they had yeah. so many footnotes that I will be checking out later. So I will definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've been through it a couple times know. and still not gotten to all the footnotes. Uh, we, we have a lot of comments and questions. There's some I want to get to. I see over here too. Yeah. Okay. So but, let's but I want to hit this one real quick because okay. this, uh, I, I know what the response is in my head. Now, but I'm curious what the response is in your head, and I think you just said it, is the burden on the parents to request additional evaluations. 
Now, let, and let me go back to this this piece right here. I mean, it it, it says uh, about the school. If the school here, the school must, in a timely manner, evaluate the student at no cost uh, to the student's parents or guardian, or guardian when the school has reason to believe. Right. So that puts the pre that puts the responsibility on the school district to identify that this kid's struggling. He's having some behaviors. We need to investigate that through an evaluation process. So, yeah, and back to the point, it's the school district's obligation, obligation. here, right? It's not just that they can. It technically yeah. is their obligation. It is our obligation, yes. Um, somebody asked here, uh, can you anonymously submit a complaint? And uh, I'm going to assume they're yes. talking about an OCR complaint, but... Um, can you, yes. can you answer that? They, they have a, it, it's weird how they do it, but yes, you, um, when you submit your complaint, your OCR complaint, then you have to submit an additional document that's like a release of information of some sort. And they give you a choice of at the bottom, yes, you are okay with, with the school identifying that you sent it or no, you would like to be um, uh, anonymous or some sort. I, I don't remember the exact language, but they give you a choice. So yes, you can. Um, there was one up here that I thought I wanted to catch real quick. I think I may have lost it. Um, oh, here it says, my nephew, here it is. The one that says, my my nephew had a IEP, yeah, and was restrained over 35 mm -hmm. times as the school didn't follow the IEP. To me, that's still disability discrimination under Section 504. And let me tell you why. This guidance is about disability uh, behavioral, disability-based behavioral disabilities, right? So they literally talk about if a child is constantly being disciplined, whether it be restrained or secluded or whatever, somebody needs to be reassessing, changing placements, providing additional services or supports. And by them not doing that and instead allowing 38 restraints is, I say, disability discrimination and also a denial of faith. So I, I would, just, just on that fact alone, consider filing a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights against your school district. So let me ask you a question, get your opinion on that, Cheryl. Um, you know, so when you look at that question, uh, you could go a couple of different ways with that. You could file a state complaint because clearly if they're not following the IEP, uh, mm -hmm. there's a problem under IDEA, or you could file a uh, complaint through OCR. Uh, now, my understanding has always been that you cannot file the same complaint twice uh, for the same reason. Well, yeah. Right. So so the question is, um, what would what would your leaning be as an advocate that's been working in this field for I don't even know how many years at this point, but what would your recommendation be? I, I always struggle with that because, again, yeah. uh, you know, there are different remedies that may in, in cases it may be very clear that this is an OCR complaint or this is a state complaint. But in a case like that, I think you could go either way. So I will say that because we were talking OCR stuff, I said OCR. <laughs> but to answer your question, because of this document, if this parent hired me and I looked through all of the paperwork and I'm seeing that, yes, this child's been restrained over 35 times or 38 times, there's no BIP or the BIP hasn't been updated in forever, no FBA is done, no additional counseling services or supports are being put in place, no behavioral IEP goals, None of that stuff is happening. I would go straight for the OCR complaint and I would use the language in this guidance to, to make my claim. Okay. And, so, and the reason why is because I feel that 
<clears throat> the outcomes. You can get more um, from uh, as a remedy that would could be systemic. I think easier and quicker in my experiences under OCR than state. And it also depends on what state you're in. Because what if what if they're in a state where they have no restraint and regulation, no restraint seclusion regulation regulations? So then you, I don't even know if you could follow a complaint or how how you would you wouldn't I guess you wouldn't be able to follow the complaint on the restraint seclusion, but you could follow the complaint on the IEP not being implemented with fidelity. Right. So um, yeah, and, and, and to further uh, muddy the waters a little bit, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's another option uh, which is filing a complaint with the Department of Justice, which yes uh, is investigating actively restraint seclusion under the ADA, yes. uh, and of course have had some pretty high profile investigations that have yeah. led to pretty significant activity. So it, it certainly gets a little, you know, and and you yeah. know, I like you, I kind of think about the impact and 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 what yeah. might have the most impact. Um, and, you know, again, it may vary on whether or not it's a systemic issue versus, you know, right. kind of a, you know, an isolated issue. But uh, there certainly are a number of avenues that uh, families or parents can go in terms of seeking some sort of resolution. Even due process. I mean, yep. we can Even talk about that. Right. You can follow yep. due process under Section 504 yep. or under uh, IDEA mm-hmm. or both. Mm-hmm. That, that one's a little bit more trickier, but there's right. some room for that. <laughs> <laughs> but she would have to get an attorney. I would highly recommend. I'm not. I don't know her state, but I would highly recommend she speak with an attorney because in some states, uh, advocates cannot file due processes, process complaints, mm-hmm. and represent mm-hmm. parents. In other states, they can. So, yes. Okay. Well, um, let me I, let you continue I, on. I'm sorry about that, Tanya, and I and I do hope that you will consider making them do better. <laughs> Hello, am I frozen? Oh. No, you're fine. You're fine. I was going to let you continue on and then we can get back Uh-oh. to some of the questions. With some of these questions? Oh, well, actually, to... let, let's hit a couple more real quick. Sandra All just right. asked a good one. Uh, is there statute of limitations on Department of Justice complaints? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Recall... OCR, but I, I, I'm not sure about. Yeah, this. yeah. I, I don't recall either. I believe that there is uh, a time frame, but I don't recall specifically what it may be. Uh, but that, that is a question that um, we can probably get an answer for. Yeah, we can um, Google that when we get off and let you know. I'm yep. thinking if so, I, yeah, I don't even want to guess. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I can tell you what they are for state complaints, at least in Virginia. It's a year. And I think that's that's a federal law. So it's a year, a year from the time the incident occurred. Right. Um, If it is a um, OCR, it's 90 days. And if it went beyond the 90 days, you can request a waiver, but you have to be able to explain why you uh, went beyond the uh, timeframes within the regulations that they give. Right, right. Uh, uh, Sandy just mentioned that uh, due process is cost prohibitive for many families, and and certainly that that can be true. That is that that that's like the biggest lie, I think, under IDEA and and school districts will try and and play that up is that parents can have representation under for due processes. And and they don't even even though IDEA says you're supposed to have freely free or reduced legal resources. None of the people, at least in in our state and a couple of the other states I've checked are have a list where you can actually find an attorney that will represent you in a due process that knows how a lot of the legal aids are underfunded. So they don't have attorneys that are really focused on special ed. They do a lot more with housing or immigration. It seems like um, special ed seems to kind of be on the back burner. 
you have disability uh, law centers, but not enough of them usually to be able to really provide the free and reduced um, legal services for due process complaints. So not only is it cost prohibited, it's hard to find an attorney that is knowledgeable and and stands a winning chance in a due process case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm Uh, do you want to go through some more of your notes here and then we'll come sure, back? Sure. You, uh, yeah, that's good. So the evaluations. Oh, yeah. This is just one other piece, you know, that they must um, that the evaluation must be based on relevant information, not just one source. It needs to be several sources. Um, it says when a student's evaluation shows that challenging behaviors is based on a disability, a team of knowledgeable individuals, usually called the student section 5014, is responsible for determining services and supports. Um, and that's where I think, um, oh, well, we were doing evaluations. I'm sorry. That's right. We already talked about that. I'm sorry. We did the restraint seclusion. And, and they use this term a lot. And I think that we should start using this term a lot, too. I generally don't, which is disability-based behaviors. Um, but I think that that is a, um, when dealing with Section 504 because of this guidance, that is a term that we want to kind of use in our work, in our language, making sure that we're connecting that, yes, in addition to whatever a child may have on, on one part of their disabilities, because sometimes they're comorbid, whatever behaviors that may get in the way need to be related and, and discussed on IEP plans. Um, and using this language. Um, and here is where we were kind of talking about, like, if a child is engaged and not ad- identified as a student with a disability, right. who repeatedly, right, is referred for discipline, uh, inappropriate verbal outbursts beyond the expected range of behavior of a stu- student of a similar age, he may need a, an evaluation to, to determine if they need faith. And again, this is something that teachers should be able to pick out fairly quick, quickly, right? If they have a kid that's always um, having issues or not able to uh, live up to the school expectations or the classroom expectations, because a lot of times you have situations where each class will have an expectation. And they actually use that as an example, I think, in, in the, uh, the guidance where um, a teacher had an expectation that teachers that a student could not, if the student interrupted other students, that that meant they weren't allowed to participate in an activity in the, the next week. OCR said in in the, this guidance that you know that could be a discriminatory practice because if you have a child that's ADHD that's in that class and they're still working on learning how to do that, punishing them in that way is basically discriminating against who they are right? Who they are as an individual. And they give that as an example. So I thought it was a great example. I loved it. (laughs) Um, And here are some other factors that they said you should look at. For examples, um, depending on the facts of the circumstances, the school's duty to evaluate could be triggered by, and they can say information or records shared during enrollment. So the kid's coming in. You see this a lot with preschoolers, right? They're going in the kindergarten and their preschool records are, oh, Johnny got kicked out of two preschools because he wouldn't take a nap or uh, wouldn't play with peers well or was throwing some sand or some rocks on the on the on the uh, on the ground right there to me. Then that's a trigger based on this comment. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Because you're like, you already know he got kicked out of two preschools. There's something going on there. Um, so teachers in the school has an obligation. A student's behavior that may harm um, the student or another person. Uh, the observation of data collected by school personnel. Information voluntarily provided by the student, sorry, uh, by the student or the parents of the students. Um and then uh, the school's own disciplinary and other actions indicating that school personnel have concerns about a student's behavior. Mm-hmm. Going to the office. And that's another thing. We just kind of talked about the big ones, right? The expulsion, this, you know, being suspended, short-term, long-term. We talked about restraints and seclusion. I love that they even talk about just sending your kid to the office a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, notes home. Oh, my gosh. I've seen behavioral logs where, I mean, every day the teacher's just documenting how he wouldn't sit down during rug time where he touched somebody, you know, it's like, and and, and then when I get them, I'm like, what? Like, it's like tattletaling. It's like, what can a parent actually do at that point? Because they're not in that academic setting with you to even understand what's going on. And so instead of sending notes home every day, complaining about the behavior, make a referral and get the child evaluated to find out what is needed, what supports are needed. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's almost really damning to have that kind of record uh, of telling everything that's wrong without answering the question of, well, did we have the child evaluate it? Did, did, did we try to develop a plan to help that child? I mean, continuing to say, <laughs> if we looked at it in a medical sense, if we had a medical problem and every day they said, here's your medical problem mm-hmm. um, and, and didn't do anything different about it, then, okay. then who's, um, who's at fault there? And, yeah. and let me, you, you would be surprised at how often I see that, like, yeah. you know, just parents in tears, especially the little ones, you know, the kindergartners, first graders, just in tears because it's so negative. And in some of it, you're like, really? He touched somebody? Did he? Right. <laughs> he didn't right. hit him, punch him, whatever. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that it didn't cause harm to him or himself. And the other kid wasn't upset about it. But some of the other stuff, you know, the taking off the clothes, the shoes, things like that. I mean, just sending notes isn't enough that's not going to help that child. And just telling the parent doesn't help the child because even if the mom comes back and says, and, and, and this is what happens a lot, parents will come back and they'll say, well, have you done this? Have you done that? And then they'll either get no response or the response is we can't do that because we have to do blah, blah, blah. You know? Mm-hmm. So, so it's it, to me, sending home notes to parents that just complain and document the child's behavior should instead be information that can be used to determine if this child is in need of Section 504 supports and related aids and services. Yeah. Well, you you even hear the idea that, well, we couldn't do that for this student. That wouldn't be fair to other students. And this guidance actually does a pretty good job of debunking that, I think. It does. It it does a really good job in explaining that um, this child has a disability. You've assessed it. You've everybody's established this, and because of that, and and I and I didn't put it on here as much because I want to dig into it a little bit more because I didn't want to get too excited. But they even talk about changing policies, procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, like how you may have to change your school policy for a student that has a behavior-related disability if the expectation is something that we know they can't do. I mean, Mm -hmm. 
that that that's big that that's, that's big yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now this last one, of course, resonates oh. with me because it's talking about, uh, you know, kind of the um, the impact of previous discipline, you know, saying yes. that if you restrain or seclude a child, you might cause them trauma. And of course, that can lead to new academic and behavioral difficulties. And, exactly. and I think that's a really important one, uh, yeah. especially, you know, as you look at things like, um, you know, these these adverse or punitive approaches. Right. Right. Yes. So those are just a few, <laughs> you know, I mean, of, of what I, I was like three pages, just that quick pieces, but there's, you know, just a lot of information to continue to digest. My, my most interesting piece is now, how do I, watching this being implemented across the districts, right? right. Um, getting a case where I get to say, hey, we need to evaluate this kid for Section 504. And I and I think for, um, thank you, Heather, for that correction. I said 90 days. You said, you're right, it's 180 days in order to file uh, a um, OCR complaint. Thank you for that correction. Um, but I was, I was going to say, I can't wait to try it out and see how right. they're responding to it. Are they right. really paying attention to this directive? And then, like, if they are, and if they're not, is OCR really going to enforce this? Are they really going to investigate? Are they going to, you know, um, ensure that? And 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 in within their investigation, because you know, if it's happening one time, you know, it's happening more than once. You know, right. are they going to make sure that they are looking at it globally? Oh, I can't even speak tonight. Sorry. <laughs> are they looking at it from a systemic issue? Are they not going to just look at that one child, but hopefully look at, well, wait a minute, this looks a little bit, you were too comfortable doing this. Are there other students that had that same experience? And if so, causing them to make systemic change. Mm -hmm, that's, mm -hmm. my, that's, that's mm -hmm. my hope. I, right. I that so, so I've got a couple notes here and a couple things that jumped out at me um, okay. that I'd, I'd like to, to kind of run by you. Um, and uh, I'll start with the first one here, which uh, there was a statement that said a school district would violate Section 504 if it had a one size fits all policy that required students with a particular disability to attend a separate class program or school, regardless of educational need. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, let, let, let me just say, and, and, and I know it varies by state by state, but the behavioral programs that I see across the country seem to exactly be that. They seem to be, this yeah. child has behaviors and we're going to put them in a behavioral program. Uh, it seems very much a one-size-fits-all approach. That's a huge statement uh, considering, I mean, am, am, I, am, am I overreacting? Am I, am I wrong that... Um, Am I just wrong in thinking that a lot of schools are doing exactly that in terms of having programs that, you know, are really um, one size fits all policies? I, of course they are. I mean, we, right. some, some districts use regional programs like they do in the Hampton Roads area, other school, I don't know what you guys use, but everybody has like that school or that place where they send your more involved students, especially those that have uh, behaviors with it. And to me, yeah, I, I read that and and because I was rereading re, re through this again today and I was like thinking of all the different ways that the school districts would try and and say, like wiggle out of a complaint like on that. Right. Because then there's always that it, it talks about that, but then it also talks about how it should be individualized. So if you're if it's a team process and the team says that this is the program the child needs. I, I'm just wondering, how can you, will OCR really address that? You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. It's like, like, yes. I, my, my first thought was a couple of our regional schools where they right. put kids that have behavioral issues, right? I mean, right, that's right, where right. you go. Well, th- this is the autism program. This yeah, is the yes, behavioral yes. program. Yes, this is that program. And that's the program right. that you have to go to. And then once we put you in that program, it's like almost impossible to get your child right. out. Right. But right. I think... Right. I think that what that that statement, yes, does rise to a level of you could say as a parent, I don't want my child in that program. It's a one size fit all program. You said all kids that have ED, let's say, to this particular program or this particular classroom or this particular school. And and it doesn't help my child because my child is exposed to additional bad behaviors from other students. So it's reinforcing some of the things I want to change. And I want to move that child out into another classroom. Um, and if they say no, uh, to file a new CR complaint, that, that would be interesting to see what would happen. I, I I know what you said and I know what you read, but I also know how school districts work. They're going to yeah, well, of course, language of course. in there that make yeah. it seem like it's the individual needs that that child needs that and the only way they can get it is there but i think if a parent can prove that they can still get those supports in a least restrictive environment then they would be okay right right yeah i I mean i i have a lot of um uh concerns and issues with a lot of things that are done in certain ways Mm -hmm. uh um you know, by schools, you know, I, for instance, uh, you know, when it comes to inclusion or being with peers, uh, how many schools out there are keeping kids in segregated classrooms mm-hmm. and pushing them out um, into uh, the general education setting for recess, uh, lunch, lunch. music or whatever it may be. Library Probably time. some of the most difficult um uh, situations for kids that might have, you know, sensory concerns or, you know, you know, they're unstructured, you know, I mean, and, and it's done because that's the program. That's the way they do things. Uh, and I remember fighting back about uh, against that locally. And, uh, you know, I mean, the amount of pushback I had to saying, hey, well, we've got to meet his individual needs. And, you know, um, recess in a general education or rather a PE in a general education setting is not an appropriate setting for my son. Um, yet there was a tremendous amount of pushback. So I I agree with you. I mean, very often schools are using programs, um, Mm -hmm. and there's also, I mean, there's racial, um, you know, issues there as well. I mean, you look at, uh, the number of black children that might end up in a, uh, behavioral classroom versus, Mm -hmm. or even with the diagnoses end up Mm -hmm. with a different diagnoses. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I have a lot of concern about most of the behavioral programs that, um, you know, I've seen happening. They're very dangerous. The ones that we have access here are very dangerous because they, um, you know, the school districts pay money for them to house our kids. But that's also where our restraints happen. And that's where we have our own seclusion rooms. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's, you know, you know, the you, you know how I feel about them. So one of the tricks I always tell my parents, don't give consent to allow them to restrain or seclude your child and they'll have them out of there in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, that, yeah. that's one of the well, requirements. Yeah, yeah. Well, in yeah. our, in here, yeah, yeah. that's one of the things they require that, right. if, if, you know, that we have to be allowed to restrain your child. Um, right. And they've actually said that we have to be allowed to restrain your child to protect staff. Right, 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 right. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. I think I've got a, a social media thing going up later tonight. But I, as I was reading this guidance again, one of the things that hit me is thinking about discrimination. Um, 
you know, in my opinion, uh, if you're building a seclusion room inside of a special education classroom or near a special education classroom, that signals to me discrimination. You are showing that you have an intent to use it on certain students. And it talks about stereotypes, right? Right. So, um, hey, are you going to file a complaint? Uh, Because that's that's a stereotype because they even said you cannot use stereotypes about students, students with disabilities, various disabilities. Um, and if they are building those specifically by sped ed or in sped ed classrooms, I, that's that's targeting. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and they almost exclusively build wow. them in sped ed or next yeah. to sped ed. No, I, I think that's a huge issue. And I do want to take that up with OCR in one way or another. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe it is a complaint, but yeah, uh, maybe. maybe I can reach out for a conversation. Um, we look about it. Yeah. Especially yeah, yeah. guidance and say, hey, you know, I just I just saw this. Hey, look, would, right. would, this, would this rise to that level? Um, I don't know how it can. You know, I mean, yeah. if you're saying the discipline should not be, how can you build a seclusion room? Uh, you know, uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't fit at all. Um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, and I'm trying to find the language that was used here. But we know that there are a lot of instances where uh, children with disabilities are having shortened school days. And this guidance certainly hit on that uh, quite a bit, mm-hmm. talked about. Um, you know, and I've always called them illegal send homes, but you know, yeah. how many times does a special education parent get a phone call? You know, we can't handle them. Come take them home. Uh, it's not necessarily being recorded as a suspension or expulsion mm-hmm. or anything else. Um, did you have any reaction to the guidance kind of talking about that? And, and, uh, I mean, it seemed like there was a lot in there in terms of like, um, you know, that all of this time that, you know, kids are being sent home should be accounted for. Yeah. I, I loved it. it. It had really good language about it. it. It gave like several examples of what that could look like. And it also even talked about having requiring parents to participate in activities and uh, it, it, for just students with disabilities, which is also a dis- discrimination. Um, so I, I thought that was wonderful because that happened so much. They, uh, you know, students are told that they can't go on field trips or they right. aren't allowed to participate. Or, or only if a parent can go. Which, <laughs> only if a parent could go. And then right. usually right. there's a fee with that, right? The school right. doesn't pay for that. Right. Um, so, yeah, that that is definitely that that's a, probably one that they would love to get and could resolve pretty easily. by mm-hmm. you know, and, and that should be reimbursement of any financial um, expense. It caused the parent to go on that trip. Um, Because other parents wouldn't have had to uh, had that burden, have that burden of paying um, for it. And and also just like within school, it doesn't even have to be out of school. How about in school auditorium events, pep rallies, things like that? Are kids with disabilities allowed and are they making it, uh, uh, you know, making it so that they can also be a part of the school community? Right, because, because that's exclusion. Them. Otherwise, yeah. you're excluding right. kids. Um, there, there was another, I, I just put my own quote up here because okay. I, this was something I got out of the guidance. Okay. Uh, nonetheless, OCR's continued enforcement experience reflects that many students with disabilities face discipline because they are not receiving the support, services, interventions, strategies, and modifications to school district or uh, school or district policies mm-hmm. that they need to manage their disability-based behavior. This is that point we talked about earlier, but I love, like you said, that it mentions policy specifically. Yes, it does. It does. It really does. And and that for me was very huge. That was big because we have a, 
uh, my 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 mind started going in into uh, how again how can I use this? What am I going to be doing to use this to make some changes where I, I provide advocacy services? And I know like one of our school districts, Virginia Beach, they have a um, uh, the outer zone policy that specifically talks about if a child has any kind of behavioral infractions, referrals, or any incidences like that, that they're not eligible really to be to access that out of zone waiver option that other students will be. And to me, that's disability discriminatory mm-hmm. because if you have a student, if your child's disability involves behavior issues, then you would be excluded from being able to have an out of zone waiver. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's what they're talking about when they're talking about policies, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things this guidance did uh, that I thought was really helpful um, was in more than one of the documents, I think in both of those documents that we've gone over or mm-hmm. uh, yes, in both of the documents, and I'm actually going to pull my screen up here for a second. Okay. Uh, they did um, something really great, which was they provided definitions. Uh, now, why is this great? Well, um, for a lot of reasons. Um, one, of course, um, it I, I never was more amazed um, when working with the school district to have simple definitions uh, conflate it. Uh, but, you know, when you go to a school district and you talk about something uh, very quickly, you find out, well, we're not really quite sure what that means. Um, I, I, I mean, listen, listen, I've heard it for all sorts of things. I mean, when yeah. I started with restraint seclusion, it was, well, we don't know what imminent serious physical harm means. It might mean something different for you than it means to me. And, and I think words typically have meanings and definitions that should be fairly universal. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the law, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> So they provide a lot of definitions here, which I think are helpful because, again, uh, I have never failed to have been amazed by how um, squishy uh, things get when you begin talking about things. So they have definitions here about exclusionary discipline, about corporal punishment, restraint and seclusion. Why is that important? Well, there are states that lack any laws mm-hmm. or definitions around these things. Right. And, and one of the definitions, of course, that I was happy to see, and I think the context by which they defined it was different than the context by which I initially read it, but they talked about serious bodily injury. Okay. Now, serious bodily injury is defined under IDEA. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is serious bodily injury has the same meaning as serious bodily harm. Uh, and that is the standard which they have long said is when restraint and seclusion might be considered uh, in a situation that involves imminent serious physical harm. And, and the definition there, um, and I'll just go over it, but I mean, if you look at the 2012 guidance, it says you should not restrain or seclude a child unless there is a crisis situation. You've tried everything else possible and it is necessary to protect the student or others from imminent serious physical harm. Uh, again, same definition. Or property damage. Property injury. Right. Yeah, Plus, in Virginia, property damage is added. Right, right. Well, but at the federal level, it's yeah. imminent serious physical harm. Uh, and I don't think property damage is ever a reason to restrain or seclude a kid because, yeah. uh, re- uh, seclu- well, restraint in particular is what I would say is potentially deadly force. Kids mm-hmm. have died being physically restrained. It is potentially deadly force. When do you use potentially deadly force on a five-year-old? Uh, I don't think you do. But you know, they go into the definition here and they say it's substantial risk of death, extreme physical pain, tr- protracted and obvious disfigurement. Uh, protracted loss or impairment of a function or bodily member or organ. This is a high bar. And, and I'm glad to see that definition there because I had to fight school districts about what that meant. And, you know, um, I'm looking forward to, and uh, while I don't, you know, have any crystal ball here, but uh, it's my understanding that that 2012 uh, resource document on restraint and seclusion is uh-huh. also going to be refreshed. 
and, and I'm hoping that guidance uh, brings forward the same definitions as well uh, and also takes some stronger um, stances on things. But wow. uh, I, I do think the definitions are really important for having in here, and I do applaud them for doing that. Um, I also love the format of, I'm trying to remember which document, but there was essentially the kind of Q&A format that talked yeah, about. Yeah, that, that was the one for IDA. Yeah, yep, yep, Q&A. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it does a great job. And, and there was one in particular, in fact, let me cheat here because if I cheat, I'll find what I'm well, looking for. And there was one more piece too I wanted to share that I just found. So okay. I, are we? How long are we here for? I want to. You know, Cheryl, until you tell me you have to go, but really um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I plan till seven or seven thirty, but okay, uh, okay, you know, we, we can keep going for a little while. Let me point that out this one good. Piece, then I'll, then yeah. I'll add it back to you. Okay, and and this again was one that was really meaningful for me which was, does the Office of Special Education Programs consider restraint or seclusion uh, to be an appropriate strategy for disciplining a child for behavior related no. to their disability? <laughs> no. No. Right? Uh, no, OTEP no. is not aware of any evidence-based support for the view that restraint and seclusion is an effective strategy in modifying a child's behavior that are related to their disability. That's huge. Um, that, is, that is absolutely beautiful. Yes. Yep. All right, you take it away. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, like when I think about that, so, oh, maybe parents can put that as their parent comment. The new right. guidance says, "Boom," just to make sure. I'm right. gonna. I, I forgot about this point that you know, talking about examples again that they said. Here was another section um, that that was uh, pointed out that I did highlight. I forgot to continue to scroll down. Um, it's called identifying necessary behavior supports, including behavioral intervention plans. And this is where they were talking about if um, other activities. So, you know, you've done the initial behavioral plan. Maybe the kids still need some, some additional supports. And they and I love that they talked about, look, counseling sessions. How mm -hmm. often do you hear that service being offered under Section 504? I, mm -hmm. I don't. I mean, I bring it up, but I, I don't hear schools like, oh, yeah, we, we can put them in some individualized counseling and help them work on that, you know, deregulation issues or whatever, you never hear that. Um, school social work services. I think that's huge. Um, there may, and that could be bringing in community supports too, that the student needs to be helpful, um, mm -hmm. to be uh, able to access education and instruction. They have school-based mental health services, physical activity, and opportunities for the students to leave the classroom on a scheduled or unscheduled basis to visit a counselor or behavioral coach when they need time and space to cool down or self-regulate it. And I self-regulate, of course, not an not a seclusion room. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, yeah. cool down. I, I, I love that. The 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 only uh, change I would make in that language uh, would be uh, or co-regulate. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, we, we often forget that a lot of our, our young students mm -hmm. uh, have not even developed the capacity mm -hmm. yet to self-regulate yes. and really need the well-regulated prefrontal cortex of an adult to help them if they're having a hard time. But I, I agree with you. I think that's great. Um, I did not uh, and have not yet had a time to really dive into the other document, the positive proactive approaches to yeah. supporting children with disabilities. Okay. Did you have any other feedback on that or have you had a chance to, to dive into that? Yeah, I, I, I kind of dove into it. Um, and it to me, it, again, it, it felt very familiar and similar. Right. Um, I didn't, nothing like stuck out like, oh, this is what I need. They did talk a lot more about COVID, the impact of COVID right. on students, um, the need for 
uh, paying attention to some more of the social emotional needs of our, of our, of our kids. But I didn't, I didn't, I, I actually felt like when I, when I did, I did them all. I read them all. I went through them all twice at least. Right. And I was more disappointed, like I said, with the Q and a um, one, because I just felt it, it didn't say anything that it hadn't said. It really did felt like it was just redoing the one that had been archived. Gotcha. I gotcha. didn't notice a lot of new rich language, <laughs> but I was glad they pull, pulled it out of archive for sure. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to see people talking about proactive strategies. Yes. Um, yes. You know, um, uh, you know, I, I have uh, some mixed feelings on uh, whenever I see evidence. Uh, well, yeah, so mixed uh, I have major that concerns. Well. Maybe that's why I wasn't excited because I'm not yeah. a big NTSS fan. Yeah, yeah, and, and no, I, I agree with you. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, I have a lot of concerns around uh, PBAS as well. Um, so, you know, certainly, um, you know, I think there there may be some things that are useful here, but I've not had the chance to really dive into this. I was pleased, though, to see talk about universal design for learning, okay. um, you know, kind of a UDL approach, which is basically where you're making a universal approach that makes things accessible for everybody. Um, there's a there's a lot of promise, I think, in UDL, but I don't know, uh, you know, when that ever comes to so fruition. The problem with these are like things that they should be doing anyway, right? I okay. did, and maybe that's why I'm not as impressed because I, I I'm feeling like they went to school to learn these. These are things that should be happening anyway right. in our schools, right. right? And they're doing the FBA thing, and then a lot of people are moving away from the idea of the functional behavioral assessment being a really good tool to understand the student, right? Because there's you know, there's that idea that, and, and it happens a lot. I see it. It's something that's triggered that happened weeks ago that the child's responding to that can't be an antecedent at that particular moment or, you know, just, there's right. just so much. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree with you. Bad. I'm just yeah. saying that. Yeah. Well, you not know, not to mention, in, in all fairness, um, you know, Cheryl, you are mm -hmm. you are a, a fighter looking for things that are going to help you strategically well, yes, that's what to protect it is. Your kids. <laughs> and, and this is, you know, I mean, I agree with you. A lot of these are things that should be done to provide uh, to provide that free and appropriate public education to kids. Um, but you know, when you get into the guidance, uh, you know, I do think, and I'm going to take this off screen, but I do think it was strong, and I do think it was. Yes. strategically helpful when you're trying to figure out how to support a child that's going through this. I mean, you're, you're in the sticks of this. Um, I know very often mm -hmm. and um, you know, that's what you need. You need things right. to support what you're doing. Well, and, let and me I think that other document did have some really, really good information for parents to kind of understand what MTSS is, because right. I don't think schools do a good job in explaining that to parents. And I think that idea that it needs to be research-based and it needs to be monitored, that they need to keep on top of that. Like, I think that's, you know, there, but um, I, I think it could be in more friendly language so that parents can use it. I, I myself right, know right. that the way that they described it there and then the implement, the way that it's being implemented in some areas is different. And yeah. when you have systems that are already have a, have a, have a program that they've invested in that's embedded in their budget and in their curriculum. Um, and when it doesn't have all the components, it's really hard to get a school district to, to shift mm -hmm. without a big fight. But mm -hmm. you're right. I, I do look for things that I can use to better my services for my clients or just for any student like we're doing here, or, you know, right. give people tools, information to um, protect your children and, and, and make sure that your children have opportunities 
to to grow, to learn, to read, to write, to have friends, to to and to be safe while doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they do talk about that a lot, which yes. was uh, something else I was happy to see, kind of uh, the feeling of safety. And, and I'll have to find there's a quote that I think. Yeah, I, they said you know, a lot. Like you know what I liked? I liked at first I, I was like, oh, goodness, I wonder if this has to do with school shootings and them coming out with a document, you know, because my, my fear is always that, you know, kids with disabilities or people, students with mental health issues are going to be the, you know, the cause of why all this stuff happened, right? right? right Not looking right, at right. anything else. And I was fearful that the document was going to give school districts permission to perhaps do the opposite of what it actually does because right, of right. the fear with school shootings. But they're, they, they're very clear. They even talk about threat assessments in one part of it, um, um, Guy. They, they were saying that Schools that use threat that use uh, threat assessment or uh, have memorandum of understandings with police, right. but they also too need to understand that you know disability, what disability discrimination looks like for a student that has a disability that has that has behaviors associated with it under um, Section 504, and they mm-hmm. recommend that the teams work together. Like if you're going to do a threat assessment on a student that has a Section 504 make sure somebody from the section 504 department in your schools are part of that. So they're not discriminating against the mm-hmm. student. So, so I think you're just saying what I was thinking here and, and make, t- tell me if I'm saying this uh, the right way, but one of the things that stuck out to me about this was it was very clearly put that uh-huh. if you are a local education agency and you are uh, in a contractual agreement in, mm-hmm. under a MOU, like a memorandum of understanding, anything with uh, law enforcement or with other contract support, that they are still held to the standards of um, discrimination that the school is. So if the school is contracting or has uh, an agreement with law enforcement, mm-hmm. those law enforcement officers uh, or those contracted employees or that contracted school are still mm-hmm. responsible for meeting these standards, right? Exactly. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That was really clear that in was, that that yeah. guidance. Yes. Yeah. That was big. That was huge in there because right. <laughs> think about when that doesn't happen, which I'm sure it doesn't happen a lot. You know, at that point, I think everybody goes to crisis mode and they forget to realize that these are students that have disabilities and we need to right. make sure that we're approaching this so that everybody, so that the outcome is safe for everyone. Right. Right. Whatever it may be. Yeah, I, I found that quote, and it was uh, entire school communities benefit when all students feel safe, safe seen, and supported. Uh, yeah, I, I just love seeing that language there because that's, that's the language that resonates with me. I want to try to have a little bit of a lightning round and go through. We have so many uh, comments and questions here. We yeah. will not get through them all, but I thought maybe we could quickly try to address a few things. And I'm just going to okay. pick out a few here. You pick them and we'll do our best. How do you quantify data on restraints when schools aren't really required to report it? <laughs> Well, they are if they are restraining, right? If yep. they have a state law, so do I have to go back up? Like, so if they have a state law, as I understand it, um, part of the state law needs to be about reporting it. And don't they have to report it to Office of Civil Rights anyway if they're restraining? So, so yeah, they, they may not have a state level reporting requirement, but all, no, no. all states are required to report restraints, collusion data to the Office of Civil Rights. So, uh, Trina, they are required to report it. But, you know, as we all know, it goes vastly underreported. The Government Accountability Office actually came down on the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights saying, we've got a problem. There's lots of districts that aren't reporting it. But there is a requirement. Some states do have state-level reporting. And if your state does not, um, advocating for that kind of legal change can be a good one. We do it here in Maryland. Uh, I know some other states do it as well. Uh, But getting state-level data can be really helpful. 
very helpful. Yeah. And uh, also you have to be careful with the data. Always assume it's underreporting. It's underreporting, in my opinion. Vastly <laughs> underreporting. Vastly. Uh, you, you know, here, here's an example for you, Cheryl. So what's the latest data? 100, 120,000 restraints and seclusions, according to the federal data. Uh, when I looked at Maryland at the last full school year, we had about 28,000. Now, does that mean that Maryland was um, 20% of the entire country? No. Wow, yeah. What it means is our Maryland data was, and, and probably did not agree with what they submitted to OCR. Um, you know, so there's a big problem on the state level reporting. Uh, and, you know, I, I remember asking questions at our district like, well, gee, you're required to report these things at different levels. How do you do that? They had a totally different chain of custody for numbers that got reported to OCR and numbers got reported to the state. Make no sense at all. Yeah. So Tanya said, loving the new guidance, but what are your feelings uh, that it will have impact at reducing restraint seclusion? Uh, they previously had the 15 principles document that th didn't seem to reduce restraints. So the 15 principles was only for states that had um, it, it not... My understanding of the 15 principles wasn't that every state was going to be implementing that. It was only for states that had restraint and seclusion uh, laws that they were going to develop and, and that they were just recommendations. They weren't really guidance because there's yeah, I, no federal law about yeah. restraint and seclusion. Unlike what we're saying on the uh, Section 504 disability discrimination, we have a law that says you cannot discriminate against a student with a disability. So the guidance is how to make sure that law is honored. My belief is that hopefully not, I don't know about reducing restraint or seclusions, but I, I hope that the guidance um, and that parents can see this as an opportunity that if your child is being restrained and secluded <coughs> and they're not getting services, immediately they need to be getting services and that part of those services should be to avoid the child being restrained and secluded and that they use some of the other behavioral <coughs> intervention recommendations that the guidance talks about. So I, I don't know if it'll reduce, but I think it gives parents and the community a tool that if it happens once immediately, hopefully you can get in there and intervene before it gets worse. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the 2012 document, uh, the 15 principles, was really, I mean, really guidance like we were talking about before. Guidance without yeah, teeth, really. meaning that this is what the Department of Education thought was the best approach. And, and I think the hope had been that that guidance would influence states that were developing laws. And it did in some cases. Maryland, uh, my state, followed a lot of the guidance that was offered. But there are some states out there today that still have no laws around restraint wow. seclusion. So you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, it is crazy. Um, what makes me feel optimistic, one, like you said, Cheryl, it's a tool. But it's only tool if we use it, right? So if these things are happening, you know, and parents complain and put in official complaints, we have more chance of influencing a change. So it's a tool that's only effective if we're actually leveraging it. Um, but I do think that, you know, we, we heard uh, Secretary Cardona. Uh, I was attending an event where he spoke and talked about mm -hmm. restraint and seclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, inclusion of this and, and all of this documentation focused around discipline to me is an indication that the Department of Education, both in the Office of Civil Rights and OSEP, are looking at restraint seclusion seriously and that mm -hmm. they want to do things to cause a change. So I think it, you know, be optimistic, but know that nothing will change if we don't stand up for change. You know, if we don't mm -hmm. encourage people to file complaints and to take action to defend their children's rights, uh, little will probably change. But I think and, we can. 
Yeah. What is there an update on it? Because I knew, you, excuse me, you've been extremely active with Bobby Scott, um, Congressman Bobby Scott, for the ESSA. Every student, not every, um, not ESSA. CASA. CASA, right. right. Uh, right. <laughs> Keep All Students Safe Act, right? Yep. So, where, so where and of course, that? yeah, that would, that's the federal bill that's been introduced, uh, the Keep All Students Safe Act. It would ban the use of seclusion. It would ban prone and supine restraint. Uh, most importantly, it would add funding for alternatives, how to better support kids and teachers and staff, uh, which I think is really critical. Um, that bill currently has more co-sponsors in the House than ever before, more co-sponsors in the Senate. Uh, but last I heard, it was still remaining still. Uh, I've actually put in a couple emails recently to one of uh, Bobby Scott's uh, staff folks to, to find out where that is and if that's moving forward. Uh, I think, you know, my honest opinion, Cheryl, I don't know if it will will pass this time. I think at some point it will, but things are so unpredictable right now that it's hard yeah, to know yeah. when that'll happen. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I remain optimistic. I think, and, and you, I think, I think we both agree, this has to be federal law. Yeah, you know, it, it is discrimination. It you is. know, while while uh, OCR said, well, you know, we don't look at data alone. When you see 80% of restraints and 77% of seclusions, that to me just spells discrimination, right? But they did go a step further to say, however, if you pair it with. Right, right. So you can find one student out of that 80%. You got them. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Anomius Maximus. Here we go. Uh, ever needs an interview with an adult who went through it. Um, and, and I would encourage you to reach out to me. Uh, my email is Guy Stevens, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S at nseclusion.org. Uh, we're always looking to share stories of individuals that have been through this. Uh, and again, sorry that, you, that you've experienced this. Um, you know, know from the many parents and my own child as well that have gone through this, uh, you know, how difficult it can be. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm just kind of looking through a few of these here. Um, yeah, we've talked about the guidance issue. Um, There's so many. Wow. Yeah, there, there, are, there are. We got a lot of, lot of feedback here. And I, I kind of went back up to the top for a second uh, just because I wanted to have a chance to look at some of these uh, comments here. Um, yeah, let's see. Somebody said uh, there's so many teachers that are hushed. I'm prepped not to refer students to testing for special education. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, there, there's certainly have been issues like this where states are trying to suppress numbers um, in terms of a uh, number of students that are identified. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the retaliation, which they're a protected class too, right? If, if teachers, I, I know some of my biggest cases, my, my Chesapeake seven case, Chesapeake six mm -hmm. case, had it not been for a teacher willing to go against the norm of being hushed, we would have never known what was happening. And I just encourage teachers to, if you can, put a put it in, try it anyway, put it in. And if they harass you, you can file a complaint. I don't know if you're in a stage in your life where that's an option, right? If you're a single mm -hmm. parent, I get it. And you're raising your own children. You're like, you're, you have financial obligations that you have to be responsible for and you don't want to risk your job. But if you are in a place where you are willing to speak up, you know, there are protections. You you can also sue on your behalf for retaliation if they retaliate against you. And if you can't do that, then sneak them a little note um, somehow. Somehow communicate with the parent and have mm -hmm. the parent make the request. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's an absolute shame that, you know, we get a guidance that says the school's responsible for doing this. But then we know that teachers who may want to make these referrals are being told not to 
being hushed, being right, right. Harassed. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we had a teacher um, working with us, um, you know, many, many years ago um, before. Well, my son had an IEP, but it was very simple at the time. It was just uh, some speech goals and uh, calling me from home, you know, from from her home at night uh, and sharing information with me kind of on the, the lowdown because right. she was afraid. She was afraid yes. to, to, to talk. Yes. And, uh, you know, that teacher really helped us to get things moving along. But it's it's sad. I mean, you know, we talk about retaliation. And you know this well, you know, you know this well. I'm I'm trying to think of uh, the young woman who we had talked to Um, before, the the teacher. uh, um, Yes. (laughs) Her name is just like this. Yeah. Um, Amani, Amani, Amani. Yeah, yeah, Amani. That's right. (laughs) Um, You know, but teachers are retaliated against just like uh, parents sometimes. Yeah. All right. Let me work through a couple more of these. For doing it first. Right, right. Uh, I had a lot of issues working in schools because all of the discrimination I saw, I was told I could not even pass my card to parents or teachers on school grounds. I don't know what your role was there, but yeah, it doesn't unfortunately surprise me. Um, Let's see. Um, uh, Somebody mentioned not filing a complaint, but they didn't get in with 180 days. And and you did mention that there is the possibility. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You can ask Um, for a waiver. You just have to explain why. And the, the, one of the, I mean, and, and this is a reality of it is a lot of times parents don't realize they can even file a complaint on a particular issue until after that time period has passed because right. say they listen to us and they're like, Oh wow. I didn't realize I could do it. Use that. You know, give a reason for why you didn't. And if it's that you didn't know that mm-hmm. you could file, make sure you let them know that, that, that right. you didn't get procedural safeguards or you didn't understand them and right. they may accept it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's one of the roles that I hope that, uh, you know, the, the Alliance can serve for people that are that are going through things like restraint seclusion is to let people know. I mean, these are the things that you can do, right. um, you know, and, uh, you know, people don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people that are past that time frame. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Heather said, even when a state does block seclusion, uh, schools still use it uh, as a behavioral invention. They just give it a cute name uh, and don't document it. That's a big concern I have. And I've actually spoken to Heather before. Um, you it's know, a reality. It, yep, That's a reality absolutely. that every parent that sends their child to school starting in Virginia in September is going to have to face. And that's scary because you don't know what that means because that, that one restraint or that one seclusion could be the end of a child's life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, one, one restraint or seclusion uh, can not only, I mean, be the end of a child's life, uh, can be uh, you know, the start of trauma and, and, uh, you know, a lot of difficulties for the child, the family, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. Well, I'm going to go down to the bottom I'm and see if there's a little upset about Cornelius Frederick. I, that is like one of the most horrendous cases in my, when yeah. I did my presentation for autism black, I kind of did a, a, a really deep dive into, to that. And, and I mean, and we watched the video, he okay. literally threw a sandwich. sandwich. I mean, and he died for throwing a sandwich. I like, how, when did we as a society think that that was okay to treat our children like that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I shared uh, something on social media today. It was from a, a friend and advocate who is working uh, around the troubled teen industry. And uh, he had spent time in a uh, religious um, behavioral school uh, where he was routinely restrained and secluded. And, and he shared a report with me that he allowed us to share today for a restraint that lasted nearly two hours. And, uh, um, you know, I think he made some comment and I don't remember what it was, something like, you know, um, 
some pretty, you know, simple comment. It wasn't anything profane uh, and ended up being restrained for almost two hours. And, uh, you know, the things that, uh, you know, and the whole report was there. The, the re yeah, that's what's really damning. You read these things and, um, you know, very often the uh, reports, people tell the truth about what happened yeah, and the is. truth is really damning. Yeah, you, know, you, you did what? You know. <laughs> and you're okay with putting this in writing? Right. You, you're justified. I mean, and that, that means they're desensitized to it. They, they think what their actions are through right. either their training or what's been allowed to happen, that this is okay. And this is the only way to do it. Right. Right. I know. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it all goes back to kind of that simpler problem that, you know, I mean, we, we talk about restraint seclusion, but it's restraint seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment. You know, 19 states still now allow that. Um, but but even more broadly, Cheryl, it's really about what all the things that are done to kids, very often kids with disabilities, black and brown kids, kids with the drama history in the name of behavior. Right. right. Um, and, and rather than focusing on you know, how do we help kids that are having a difficult time? It's all punitive. It's all about consequence. And, you know, I mean, I, I keep going back to this idea that, you know, um, and it's a simple thing, but, you know, if a kid can't read, we don't set a book in front of them and then hold up a cookie and say, read the book and I'll give you a cookie. If the kid doesn't have the skill to read the book, the kid can't read the book. But with behavior, we kind of do that same thing, right? We, we say, okay, well, we know you're not able to meet the behavioral expectation, but, but here's your reward, right? Here's your cookie. Here's your Skittles. Um, you know, kids need help developing the skills they lack. Kids need help, um, you know, um, you know, with having appropriate accommodations, you know, but very often, you know, people look at even very young kids and think it's all like intentional, like, you know, right. these five-year-olds. Right. I mean, how many times have you read, I'll ask you this, how many times have you read something in a report or something you got back from a parent that had this elaborate thing that they're accusing a five-year-old of doing that not only did the five-year-old probably not have the capacity to yeah. do it, Yes. You know, I mean, I read things about my son and I'm like, I don't even know that I could have come up with that. And you're accusing my son of doing this. I know. Crazy? I hear the student, little Johnny chose to do right. this. You know, they right. chose. It's, it's it's not even a choice for them at that point. It, they they right. are just trying to grasp what is expected of them and what can they do. And, and, and it is hard. Now, I'm not going to. I know it's hard. You know, yep. behaviors yep. are hard. But I think we, I think our system, our educational system makes it harder because it's so institutionalized as is it from a perspective of you have to fit this perfect little box. And if yeah. you don't in any way, whether it be your race, your okay. disability, your sex, um, your, your, even, even I think kids that are uh, extrovert with more confidence, just for whatever reasons, they'll have a better experience in our public education than anybody else. Right, you know, right, right. Our yeah. public education needs to be refocused and realize that we are so different as individuals. Right. right. And to embrace that because yeah. there's a lot of good stuff in it. Um, and, well, we, and we that's make what, expectations of kids we would never make of adults. Exactly. We make expectations that don't take into account disability. I mean, you know, for, for years, my son had on his IP about, um, you know, um, looking at the making eye contact. Now, if you're neurodivergent, eye contact may not only be uncomfortable to you, but maybe maybe antagonizing for you. Exactly. Uh, putting this this, you know, rigid set of expectations on mm -hmm. human beings. Uh, and, and I would say, I mean, you know, to me, one of the biggest issues is this this uh, idea of compliance, right? It's all about compliance. Ooh, it's all about compliance. Yeah, we, we've got to make kids comply. And, and you know, yes. 
you know, what, what do we want for our children? Do we want them to be compliant or do we want them to be creative? Do we want them to be thoughtful? Do we want them to make connections? Do they want, you know, I mean, compliance, not the top of my list um, no, by any means. Mine either. Yeah. And nor, but I'm neurodivergent. So compliance right. is just for me an opportunity to, <laughs> to challenge you. Right. 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 <laughs> you know, it, it, it is, it's almost like this, this sense of, Compliance for what? And and that's another good thing, parents, while we're talking about this. This is very, very important, what we're talking about from as it relates to this Section 504 document from a perspective of when you get your teacher, your uh, classroom expectations this year, compare them to what you know your child can do and can't do. And if your child can't do some of the stuff that they have on there, you need to call a meeting with that teacher. You need to get a 504 plan or have a meeting with um, um, about your IEP. That That's a really good way to like kind of stop some of the issues before they start. Mm-hmm. Really pay attention to what those teachers are expecting of your child. And if it's unrealistic, then you have a meeting about it and you make arrangements so that your child can be accommodated or modified through that process. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, Cheryl, um, we've gone past time. I, I promised I wouldn't keep you past. So uh, I, I know you've got to go in as well. Yes. But this has been a great conversation. Um, it always I is really when we talk, Yeah, I mean, I was excited to, to when you called the other day and we were chatting. Yeah. Um, but it's even more fun to, to share the conversation with others and, and to talk about this. And, you know, my hope is always that in these conversations, it's going to benefit somebody. And I think you've offered some really great input. Uh, let me ask you too, um, you know, I know that you are an advocate and Ooh, that you, yes. uh, through the wonders of, uh, you know, the, the changing world, uh, probably uh, advocate for kids now all over the country, uh, attending meetings via Zoom and whatnot. Um, I'm giving you my email. You have my email address. Well, I, 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 you know, the best thing is you have it right behind you right now. Oh, yeah. Which is what I was just going to plug <laughs> is the Advocating for Kids, advocating for kids <laughs> website. And I'm going to put that in the uh, the chat as well. Great. Uh, but if people want to get a hold of you, uh, they could reach out to you through the Advocating for Kids site. Um, mm-hmm. And your email is there as well. Um, and, you know, I just want to thank you, Cheryl, for for prompting this discussion and, um, you know, for having it with me tonight uh, and encourage people if they have an interest in um, or are looking for more help that, that you can be a great resource for folks as well. Yes, yes. Please, please reach out to me if you're interested in some trainings. I'm going to be doing some trainings. Thank you. Um, coming up uh, on a whole bunch of stuff. But I think I'm definitely going to do a training on behavioral, dis, uh, what, what are they calling it? I said I was going to call it disability behaviorally based. Right. Because right. I think that this document can really, really help parents protect their children and help parents help their children have a good school year. So absolutely. So and and it's going to continue to be a tough school year. Yes. Last year was a tough year. This it's year will be continue. a tough year. Yeah. Uh, it, it's going to continue. So Cheryl, thank exactly. you so much. Thank you everybody thank that joined you. us. Tonight. Thank you everyone. And uh, we'll, we'll see you again soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.